0: Welcome to Act In Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and also an occasional host. Today we're bringing you an interview released on the podcast back in 2016, but we believe the topic in this segment is still just as important today as it was then. In recent years, populism has gained traction both abroad and here in the U.S., crossing ideological and partisan lines. Throughout history, it's taken different shapes, but displays similar attributes. Zoltan Kez, co-founder of the Free Market Foundation in Budapest, said in 2015 that, quote, populists are especially dangerous enemies because they are strategizing in the terms of democratic competition, reshaping democracy and deconstructing the rule of law step by step, unquote. Simply put, populism poses a threat to freedom, suppressing minority opinions and only adding fuel to the fire of our chaotic public discourse. So where exactly are we seeing populism take shape in America? And how will it affect us in the future? Ben Dominich, writer and co-founder of The Federalist, joins us in this episode to break it down. To read more on this topic, I've linked some good articles and reading materials in the show notes for this episode, posted at blog.acton.org. If you like this episode, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. I'm always checking our reviews because your feedback matters to me. Every week we're working at making the best show for you, and I couldn't do it without you. Also, if you ever have suggestions for guests or topics, or you just want to contact our team, you can reach me at actinline at actin.org. We're
1: welcoming Benjamin Dominich. Ben is the publisher of The Federalist, host of The Federalist Radio Hour. Ben lectured today at the Acton Institute on the topic, uh, the rise of American populism. And that audio and video is going to go up on acton.org as it typically does. And Ben was uh, generous enough to take some time to sit down and speak with us today. Ben, I wanted to open open up our discussion with a quote from our namesake here at the Acton Institute, Lord Acton. He wrote that liberty is the fruit of a mature civilization. Scarcely a century has passed since nations that knew the meaning of the term resolved to be free. In every age, its progress has been beset by its natural enemies, by ignorance and superstition, by lust of conquest and by love of ease, and by the strong man's craving for power and the poor man's craving for food. I thought of that quote today. A friend of mine had, had just posted it up on, on social media. And those last phrases really resonated. The strong man's craving for power and the poor man's craving for food. Could you talk a little bit about the dynamic of the strong man, the appeal of the strong man? I know that you use that phrase a few times in today's lecture. What is it about the strong man that's appealing? And what is it about the American version of a strong man, whether today or in history, uh, that can be edifying for us?
2: You know, Jordan, that's a, that's a wonderful quote, and uh, it really does uh, describe what animates so much of our politics today. It, it seems to me that the American version of the strongman uh, has a couple of qualities that uh, you don't always see in other countries uh, or in other uh, polities. And I think that what you see within the American experience is that uh, we, we go through these ebbs and flows of American populism, uh, but one of the things that stands out about the people who are often at the, the head of these of uh, these waves is they are people who reject the uh, the approach of the elites in many different ways. Uh, they don't just reject, the, the authority of the elites uh, when it uh, comes to uh, knowledge and, and ac- uh, academia and those types of things. They don't just reject the elites when it comes to their tastes, um, uh, but they also reject the elites when it comes to giving them any respect for the position that they occupy Uh, basically what you see you know when you go back and look historically at a lot of different examples uh, from american populism's rise uh, beginning with andrew jackson and continuing through today is the the strong man who who will serve the people, who will serve the interests of the people, and set things right, is called upon when people believe that the system has become fundamentally corrupt. Um, they believe that only someone who has those types of qualities that they respect—this toughness, this uh, this kind of stoicism, this uh, uh, this inability to. Uh, ever back down or give up imagine a you know a bull, a bulldog in the middle of the street <laughs> uh, barking at an oncoming tractor trailer and you get kind of the idea and that's something that the people uh, the american people pretty consistently come back to respecting time and again and one of the things that i think is is unique about that is that uh what what americans ask of the strong man is uh, to go to go in there and to set things right by sweeping away what they view as a system of that has become corrupted or that is full of graft or that is full of people who are not looking out for their interests and to serve them. Essentially, when you get right down to it, what they're actually asking for is a better class of elites. They're, mm-hmm. they're asking for a, a group of, of leaders who uh, will respect them as opposed to disrespecting them and viewing them as a bunch of of ignorant, dangerous Hicks. Uh, and that's the type of, of dynamic that I think you know, didn't just fuel the rise of Andrew Jackson, but that we're seeing today, which is different than an ideologically driven populist rebellion, which is something that is much more about, you know, a specific issue, uh, whether it be, a, you know, a constitutional rebellion, like, mm-hmm. like the Tea Party, or whether it be um, uh, a, a kind of populist rebellion on behalf of some social good. You can consider you know, many of the movements of the, of, of the 60s, but also I would point to uh, things like the temperance movement. That was actually a populist movement primarily driven by women and by preachers you know, who wanted to make a significant change in order for, uh, to affect the social good. It wasn't just some top-down thing from the elites who wanted to you know, sure. stop people from drinking. And so when you look at the threads of American populism, the, the kinds of movements that end up raising up these strong men are are often not ideological in nature. It doesn't actually have to do with a, a specific series of policy issues or something like that. It's much more about, I can trust this outsider. He is going to stand up for me.
1: Okay, so that, that's great, because one of the things that occurred to me while you are talking was the question of the Tea Party revolution or the, the movement or whatever it was. And thinking back to it, I mean— It's hard to think of a kind of a singular leader Mm -hmm. of something like the Tea Party. That was much more, as you said, of a kind of a classical, ground-up, popular movement, if not strictly Mm -hmm. populist. So are there continuities between the Tea Party movement and what we're seeing in this current election cycle? Are they fundamentally different? Um, Is it the— is it the nature of populist movements to have the strongman, or is that just a certain kind of populist movement, which I guess you kind of addressed yeah, already? So, but.
2: so the, the Tea Party uh, has some threads that connect to today. Um, in fact, Emily Eakins, now at the Cato Institute, has done a wealth of research within this area and, and uh, has some excellent data that kind of chops the Tea Party into a couple of different factions. One of uh, Two of these factions were motivated primarily by economic concerns— uh, in the wake of, of uh, the bailouts uh, and limited government concerns.
1: And globalization too, right? Yes. Just there's a, definitely a threat. Yes. Maybe and that's one of the other Yes.
2: Ones. And then the third one were people who were much more uh, they cared more about immigration, globalization, mm-hmm. um, and those types of issues. And what you saw is that the first two thirds tend to dis- tended to describe themselves as conservative. They were frustrated with the Republican Party because it wasn't fiscally conservative enough. They had a very clear ideological motivation. But then that other third didn't speak as much in those terms. It, it spoke more in the terms of grievance and feeling that uh, that the system was corrupt and that it wasn't representing their interests. It's that third portion that ended up gravitating more toward Donald Trump. All the
1: bad trade deals.
2: Yeah, basically, you know, because if you think about it, the Tea Party really was. Everyone was angry at the bailouts, but there was a portion, significant portion of the Tea Party that was saying there should be no bailouts. And then there was another smaller portion of it that was saying, where's my bailout? And I think that Mm. that kind of got glommed together as if it was all the same thing, when in reality they were saying different things. They were both mad at something that it happened, but they were mad for different reasons and they wanted different things to come out of it. So does the, did that tea party sort of movement morph in some ways into what we see today? Yes. Uh, however, one of the big differences that we see within the tea party, when we look back at the demography of the people who, uh, at its height were saying that they identified as being, uh, you know, pro tea party or with them in spirit, uh, is that they actually are, uh, wealthier than you might expect. The Tea Party is was a fairly middle class and upper middle class uh, rebellion mm-hmm. against uh, against Washington. It was a lot of people who were ticked off uh, because of of you know uh, of not just the the housing bubble bursting and the values of their homes shrinking, but the values of their four hundred one k's shrinking, everything else that came with that, and. Those sorts of frustrations were primarily driven by middle and upper class, upper middle class concerns. The rebellion that we saw take place, at least in the early going of the Republican party of the Republican primary this time around was a number of voters who typically did not vote in primaries were not active, which is not a description of most of the tea parties. They were very active. Um, these are people who, you know, had honestly, you know, may have even voted for Obama in 2008, some of them. Um, But uh, in fact, I actually, my own suspicion, even though this is not as data-driven, is that you can draw a direct line from the 2008 Democratic primary to the 2016 Republican primary, hmm. looking at the issue of, of uh, the white working class voters who kept Hillary Clinton going in the end, who's backed her in Pennsylvania, who backed her in Ohio, who were you know supporting her uh, against Barack Obama because they didn't view him as being someone who would look out for their interests if you recall, and it's easy to forget, when Barack Obama made that comment about Americans who were clinging to their guns and their religion, it was in the context of the primary. He was talking about Hillary Clinton's <laughs> old white Democratic supporters, and he was viewing them as basically a coalition of the past that we could sweep that he could sweep away, and instead go to this more diverse, younger uh, mm-hmm. coalition that now Hillary Clinton is trying to inherit. Uh, and that I think is is significant in the sense that. If you come from that type of area, if you come from the southern and eastern part of Ohio, if you come from Western PA, um, if you come from the Scots Irish territory that runs uh, along the Shenandoah, you you understand this. I mean, it's no accident that two of the counties, uh, that two of the areas that gave Donald Trump his highest percentages in the primary were Staten Island and southeastern Virginia. Mm-hmm. Okay whole country poor hit the worst by the economic uh, recession they've never really come back and that in, in that kind of environment you feel very despairing and if you're from if you're a Staten Island cop, and you're frustrated by the lack of of law and order in our cities. If you feel like we're spinning off the axis when it comes to that, we issue. need
1: more stopping and frisking, exactly, or whatever. Exactly, whatever the new thing. Both he's of those promise. things, yeah. even
2: though even though they're very different in terms of the <laughs> the cultures of both those areas, uh, you can end up supporting a, a movement like this because of that populist appeal.
1: Okay, so so I'm hearing that the new thing now is this is this strongman that we're going to have come in, sweep away everything. Bring cold jobs back. Get tough on crime. What you know? Um, so you you during the lecture today as well. You talked about this. How far down the road to serfdom are we? Because these are the kind of st- categories and progressions that I'm I'm seeing at work. Uh, yeah. Where are we? Are we at that point where we're sick of the the elites and we we really just want to bring somebody in who can get things done?
2: I think we're sick. I think we're sick of the people who stand up if. Uh, uh, you know, in, in the, in the language of the road to serfdom, I think we're sick of the people who stand up on the stage with a big plan and just <laughs> say, this is the plan and it's going to solve everything for you because that's effectively what Barack Obama did. Right. Um, and you know, he promised, he overpromised and he was unable to deliver on that promise for a lot of Americans who supported him and for those who didn't. And I think that the, the upshot of that is that now, uh, people are much more vulnerable, to an appeal that is far more authoritarian uh, in nature about getting things done.
1: Certainly less technical, cer- right? So, sure, so-
2: <laughs> sure. Certainly not technocratic. But but here's the the positive thing about it. I think is uh, and I and I said this uh, or I noted this in the lecture is it's positive to see that there are so many people who still view politics as a legitimate way to air uh, these uh, grievances and to try to have an impact. And um, what's actually encouraging to me about this is that President Obama's strategy in approaching The uh, working class Americans really didn't leave them satisfied. This this is all this. What's the matter with Kansas stuff that has that the uh, that liberal America has been talking about for decades, which is why don't these poor white people. Vote for Democrats because our economic policies, we believe, are going to be more generous. They're voting against their material
1: interests, right? Just the old, because that's all that drives people to vote. Of course, is their material interests.
2: Exactly. Now, of course, what that leaves out is that they vote that way for different reasons, often religious reasons or social reasons, or because they care about uh, things other than just uh, what's being shoved in their pocketbooks. And I think that the the real thing to take away from this, in a positive sense, is that. People aren't happy with that agenda. That agenda has not left them satisfied. They are not. Uh, they are not. Go, uh, you know, doing backflips over over Obamacare. It was interesting to me to see the befuddled reaction uh, when uh, in uh, the last uh, uh, last year in the uh, in the election uh, for uh, for the Kentucky governorship, uh, where you had a uh, you know a contest uh, where you know the Kentucky uh, uh, sort of. Uh, uh, their their approach to um, implementing Obamacare had actually been very successful when it came to signing people up for Medicaid. It was a much their their exchange worked better than most of the other states. Uh, it didn't have some of the same problems. And so the upshot was that a lot more people got Obamacare in Kentucky than they had originally uh, uh, thought were, were going to get it. And yet, some of the counties where you saw the highest increase in people signing up for Medicaid also were the strongest in voting for a candidate in Matt Bevan for governor, who uh, who promised to get rid of the program. Hmm. And so uh, this was something that stunned a lot of Democratic politicians. You know why are why are they voting against their self interest? Well, because Medicaid isn't leaving them satisfied. It's it isn't making them happier. Maybe they feel a little bit more secure, you know, regarding their health, but they they don't really view it as an answer and they don't think of it as something that is uh, a sufficient replacement for the pursuit of happiness. And I think that that is a sign that this approach from the left has failed to win over those voters. They're still looking for something better.
1: Okay. So, so this also plays again into something that you talked about in, in, in the lecture where you've got this kind of a model of a, a younger white working class males who have in historic numbers, opted out of the workforce, have been involuntarily left out of the workforce. They've got their $1,200 a month in whatever form of government assistance is coming in. It's enough, again, to self-medicate and do all these kinds of things. It's enough to address, um, in Acton's formulation, the poor man's craving for food. Mm-hmm. But what I'm hearing is it's not enough. And this is not just what's driving people. It's not just the poor, the poor man's craving for material sustenance or material provision. Some of the, the, the guiding lights of the Acton Institute are, are figures like uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn and Abraham Kuyper and Leo XIII at the end of the 19th century who are dealing with some similar sorts of revolutionary dynamics, upheavals and great inequalities mm-hmm. and angst. And where all of these, these kinds of figures start is that there's a spiritual hunger, a sp- need for spiritual food that is at the root of all of these social issues. Um, to what extent do you think that's true? And how is that reflected in our cultural challenges today, um, the lack of trust in institutions and the mediating institutions, which you spent a lot of time, uh, mm-hmm. rightly so, emphasizing in the lecture today?
2: It, it seems to me that this is really strikes at the core of, of how bad things have gotten for many Americans, because the, the conversation that we have about religion in this country is really colored by... Uh, an upper class of people who uh, who still interact with the faith, uh, who still uh, you know have some kind of religious element to their lives, or who have no need for it because of other things that fill their time or or that they find fulfillment in. Religious faith has always been something though that helped make life, Worth living Mm -hmm. for many Americans, and uh, made you feel connected—not just uh, an individual and lost in the sea, but a feeling that uh, that there is a real uh, community out there that you are 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 part of. If if we live in an era of such hyper individualization, where People are constantly struggling to find fulfillment, and uh, and constantly having something in their life uh, that uh, that is a gaping maw that needs to be filled or or was filled in the past by religious belief. Then I think that's an indication of just how much we've slipped away from having religion be a, a mitigating factor, a mediating institution in our lives. Distrust for the church, not just the Catholic Church, but for evangelical churches, for other. Churches in America um, is part of the problem here. Uh, another part of the problem, I think, frankly, is is the church not understanding that, uh, that it has to really go forth and evangelize and meet people where they are, as opposed to waiting for them to come to them. Um, I think that, you know, another part of it, frankly, is that in...
1: The church is a servant rather than as a country club kind of model, right? Exactly, Somewhere to be served.
2: And one of the other things that I think actually is a a problem with this, uh, and I don't mean to offend any of your listeners, is I I actually think there is a connective line between the growth of self-help churches and the prosperity gospel and uh, the rise of someone uh, like Donald Trump. Sure. Because... If you're just told over and over again that God is rewarding you because you are being a good Christian, or that that reward is an indication of your own goodness and and what uh, and what you're doing in your life, an affirmation of it, um, then wealth and prosperity can become a substitute for actual acts of 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 grace uh, toward others. And I think that you know the flip side of that can also be true, which is to say you can feel. Guilty or downtrodden or upset about the fact that you're not doing as well, and that this is something that can lead you to, uh, you know, frankly, the wrong decision to break away from the church mm-hmm. or, to, or to start viewing them as being, you know, a place that, that has no, uh, no space for you. I think that that spiritual crisis is, you know, again, a long running thing, something that predates this populist moment, uh, but something that has definitely been continuing uh, to grow as a, as a crisis really uh, among our families and in our communities.
1: So as as meaning as the relevance of, and and vitality of these mediating institutions, including the, things like the church, um, and all the you know all the other kind of things, the 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 Nisbet mm. sort of thing, the quest for community and all this, um, as this has slipped away as a as a viable arena, and we've we've seen power evacuated from these mediating institutions. Um, we're left with this model that you provide, uh, and I think rightly so, between a kind of a centralized group of elites and these disparate atomized individuals. Mm-hmm. And this is something like what we're approaching. It certainly hasn't been implemented to the absolute uh, ex- end, end degree in all times and in, in all places. There's there's different experiences of this, depending where you are in the country, what, what your zip code is and this kind of thing. Um but what what are the what are the solutions to this? I mean, this is mm-hmm. it's one thing to to diagnose it and say, um, you know, look, we're not we're opting out. Yeah. yeah, we're we no longer find meaning in these places, or I don't trust the church anymore. The declining trust in institutions as such, which you outlined, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's all institutions. It's it's sort of big yes. institutions, right? So it's not just. It, Anti-institutionalism, although that seems to be a part of it, but
2: the the only things basically that people are positive on the positive side when it comes to trust of institutions are the military and small business,
1: right? Yep.
2: So virtually everything. So the else. small businesses too, yes. right? It's not
1: corporations, not of course. Corporations, right? no. So it's big institutions, including things like denominations mm-hmm. or the mainline kind of ways of identifying big institutional religion. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, so let me just follow up on that and ask another another form to follow up. I guess more on the prescriptive side. True. Sure. Um, Luigi Zingales had a book, and I know we've we've talked about it a little bit. Um, "Capitalism for the People" was the title of the book. Um, what is it about the free market message that has failed to resonate? Why why isn't there more of a kind of a clear popular appreciation? For free markets, mm-hmm. and what is it about that message that that uh, is failing to resonate? Is it are we not? Is the packaging wrong? Are the ideas right, and the packaging is wrong, or what's going? Because mm-hmm. it seems to me that it, the message is is something that that should connect with everybody. If it's not an economy that's working for everybody, then it's not working right.
2: So I think a big part of it is. Uh, that the message that has primarily been used by many free marketers, at least on the political stage, has been a message directed at the entrepreneurial class, mm-hmm. which is actually a very small number of sure. Americans. It's not a significant portion of Americans. That entrepreneurial tend spe- to be
1: elites, actually, yes. m- many of them, right? Because yes. they have a kind of a, a safety net. I yes. mean they take risks, but yes. it's also
2: <laughs> And I think that I think that the problem with that is that most Americans are not that type of risk taking businessman. They are instead uh, you know, people who are working and want good-paying jobs and want uh, solid benefits. They don't want to worry about losing that job to uh, global competitive forces. They, uh, they want to be able to have a, a solid life for themselves and for their families and for their kids if they have them. I think that the problem really is that the message on the free market front has been more about The, the, you know, the rugged individualist entrepreneur, you know, pulling himself up by his bootstraps, you know, that we built that sort of approach. Right. Instead, I think that the message has to be um, the American, the American system of of free markets has allowed us to have enormous advantage when it, when it comes to inexpensive goods, where, you know, even the poor people, even poor people can afford smartphones and uh, and all these other things. I think the message actually has to refocus on the things that make up that people view as essential to their lives that are uh, warped by government policy uh, in ways that do not behave according to uh, actual market forces. A perfect example, of course, is the cost of a college education. If you're a parent today, even if you didn't go to college, you want your kids to go to college, presumably. Right. And you're daunted by the idea that, oh my gosh, how am I ever going to be able to afford this? Well, colleges have been insulated for far too long by our current system of of, uh, of policy uh, against the type of market forces that would, uh, that would force them to offer cheaper products and offer educational experiences that actually have uh, an outcome that is likely to get people a job. Breaking up that system in a way that would Break up the higher ed monopoly on uh, on uh, the the kind of uh, the the kind of cartel that they have when it comes to accreditation. Allowing for more courses to be accredited uh, within uh, the corporate environment. Allowing for more training and apprenticeship programs. Uh, allowing for more
1: innovation, basically. Yes, the very thing yes. that you don't find in, yes. <laughs> in higher ed.
2: So <laughs> think about think about the things that the people are most worried about when it comes to you know if if you if you want to have a successful middle class life. Uh, working in a job where where you are making you know a median uh, income or close to it, uh, the things that are daunting to you are the costs, the rising, continuing rising costs of college for your kids, healthcare for your family, housing for yourself, and all of these are areas where government policy has an enormous warping effect, uh, and uh, and those are the types of things that I think we ought to get uh, more. Uh, we ought to be more focused on I uh, right now. Energy prices are not a problem for people, but I think that one of the interesting things that happens when you, when you talk about a lot of the, uh, the different pocketbook issues is that there's a real gap between the way that the economist at a think tank in DC looks at things and that people practically look at things for their sure. lives. They, they view the, the rising costs of a lot of these goods as things that prevent them from ho- having any hope that their kids will have a life that's better than their own or that their grandkids will have a life that was better than theirs. Uh, and uh, and I think that's a lot more about these areas where uh, the free market – Uh, Voices for Free Markets uh, should be targeting areas where government has uh, had an incredibly warping, Mm -hmm. uh, anti-competitive, anti-innovation effect uh, in a way that has hurt uh, Americans and has added uh, costs to them. We can't just get into this back and forth with the left, where they're just saying, we'll just throw more money at the problem. We have to say, we need to break these systems open, we need to have more competition, and we need to get back to healthcare systems, colleges, and a housing market that that serves the priorities of our citizens, as opposed to responding to the whims of Wall Street, or the whims of of uh, in, uh, investors, or the whims of, certainly, college administrators.
1: We need a uh, an economy that works not just for Wall Street, but all also- streets. Uh, speaking of breaking the system open, I'm going l- l- to bring our conversation to a close. And thanks again, Ben, for joining us today with a question about the political expression of populist movements, Maybe whether it's the one today or or historically. What, what hope is there for this rebellious spine that you identified in, in the lecture as a constitutive of the American people? What hope is there in this rebellious spine of the American people? And how should that hope come to expression? Please give me a message of optimism that we can somehow smash this intolerable duopoly we have in our, in our political system. What is there a third party hope? What is there? I mean, what should we hope for politically, even realizing that that's not yeah. the, the main vehicle of our...
2: Well, Well, first off, I just have to say, I think, I think politics is downstream from culture. Yep. I think the most important aspect of of this populist rebellion is actually not its political ramifications so much as it is uh, what comes next w- within the culture and within how people either alter their behavior, change the way they live their lives, who get find help, get treatment, collaborate with others to solve the problems in their communities. I think that's the most important thing. But when it comes to the political aspect of it, uh, I think that the the real danger coming out of this uh, election, uh, is that all of the pieces are in place for no one to learn anything. <laughs> and the reason for that is that after this, uh, everyone is uh, incentivized to retreat to their corners, uh, to blame it on whoever their, uh, typical, uh, um, blame target is, whether it be conservative media or the establishment or, uh, reality TV or what have you. Mm-hmm. And say, okay, well, that was a black swan event. Let's move on. I don't think I think it's possible for both Trump to be a black swan candidate, a unique celebrity with a unique traitor to his class appeal to uh, working class Americans. Um, uh, versus, uh, but but it's also possible for him to be an indication of a trend. I think he is both. Um, and and I think this trend that has been moving away from our post-Cold War left-right politics of the previous uh, decade and a half towards something that uh, looks more like uh, an, an inside-outside uh, or or a top-bottom sort of uh, politics, where if, if you come from, from uh, a certain class or you come from a certain area that you identify as being uh, one of the deplorables or the downtrodden hmm. or something like that, that you view uh, the elites as people who hate you and who resent you and who certainly don't respect you or your views. I think the most important thing to come out of this is whether we're going to see a new generation of leaders who learn how to treat these people with respect and treat their views with respect. And that's not to say that they have to accept the answers that these people necessarily want. Okay. But it is to say that they have to respect the, the, uh, the, the situation that they are in the concerns that they have, and then they have to channel and lead that. I mean, that's, that is as fundamental a Burkean definition of statesmanship Mm -hmm. as it is. And I think that that, uh, judgment and respect offered to the citizenry is going to be the most important aspect of what comes next. If we don't see that happen, then I think that we are entering a period where if the Republican coalition does not die, it will at least be changed and become something else. Sometimes historically parties die. They retain the same name, but they Mm -hmm. have a different coalition. They have different people who make up their voting base. And it's very possible that we could see a situation where a third party uh, or another coalition uh, or another portion of the coalition uh, uh, emerges from this as staking out turf in a different area. The most curious aspect of that, to me, will be what happens to social and religious conservatives. Mm-hmm. They may they may not be the the favorite of the elites. They may not be uh, representative necessarily of the of the populist rebellion that that elevated Trump, but they are still a significant portion of the American electorate. And increasingly, I think they are feeling. Homeless when it comes to uh, viewing any leaders who are willing to, to stand and fight uh, on their behalf.
1: Perhaps a good reminder for religious believers that this world is uh, not our ultimate home. At least this world in its current formulation, and that we are we are sojourning here to some degree.
2: We have the we have the advantage of knowing how the story. Works.
1: <laughs> That's correct, and that that is a, a message of hope in the end. Benjamin Dominich is publisher of the Federalist, host of the Federalist Radio Hour. He writes and edits the transom, which is highly recommended. Ben, thanks very much for joining us here today.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening today. If you're interested in learning more about the topics in today's show, I've linked all the articles, books, and more that were mentioned in the show notes, and those are published at blog.acton.org. Here at Acton, our podcast team is working hard to make a great show for you every week, but we couldn't do it without you. Help us make an even better podcast and reach us at actinline at actin.org. This episode is produced and edited by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Doug Nagel.